Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca Frady, your host. Before we start today's episode, I just want to remind you, this is a Jewish Coffee House podcast, so check out the link in the show notes to check out and listen to the other podcasts on the network. I did this episode. I wasn't sure if I was comfortable releasing it, but here it is. I have a feeling that I will be getting a lot of messages about FAM, and I'd like to hear your thoughts. <laughs> Let's dive right in. Welcome to the Francisca Show. Today with us, we have Dr. Tal Weinberger from Philadelphia, Balakinwood. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And you are a psychiatrist who specializes in reproductive health for women. That's right. Okay, great. Tell us a little bit about yourself, both religiously, and then we'll move to your professional background. Religiously. I guess I would consider myself to be modern with wax. I'm told that that term is not, you know, really in such such use anymore. I live in Balakinwood. I have six children. Were you raised from? Yeah, yeah. I was definitely raised to be, you know, Shomer Shabbos and Kashras, and we've definitely, you know, kind of developed our level of observance since then. Let's talk about how you got into the work that you do and your background in that. I went to medical school here in Philadelphia. That's actually what brought us to Philadelphia, the University of Pennsylvania. And I did my residency training at the University of Pennsylvania as well. I have really always been interested in psychiatry, really from when I was in, well, I don't know about almost always, but when I was in college, I, I actually ran a soup kitchen in inner city New Haven. And so many of the people who came to our soup kitchen really were severely mentally ill. And I was just really very touched by number one, like just how much suffering was involved in having a serious mental illness and how much I, you know, wished I could really help them and, you know, wasn't able to in the position I was in. Also just fascinated by the concept of an illness that affects kind of thoughts and emotions in, you know, in a profound way. After I finished residency, I uh, was on the faculty at Penn for a year and moved into private practice and then subsequently was on the faculty at Jefferson for 14 years where I ultimately became director of outpatient services. I really got into perinatal mental health, honestly, really through seeing patients in the Orthodox community. You know, these patients wound up getting referred to me just as kind of a culturally sensitive referral source, just sort of, you know, be it as it may, many of these patients, you know, wound up, you know, either being pregnant or becoming pregnant. And I kind of over the course of taking care of these patients, I really was hooked. And I, I really made it my business to really learn more about that field and, you know, eventually became really a specialist in that field, which is what I am now. And I really, really, really love working with that patient population with pregnant women because of the capacity really to very profoundly impact two lives. I'm currently, actually, I left Jefferson about three months ago, and I'm currently director of psychiatry at Chemed in Lakewood, where I'm also really just trying to bring needed resources to a community that's really in need. Okay, so when you talk about the needs and the culturally sensitive, what, what did you call it, base of referral, yeah. yeah. Yes. Let's talk about the issues at hand, and then how are they unique to from women? Right, so I mean, within the field of perinatal psychiatry, they may not be in need of anything, you know, 
sort of more specialized than any perinatal psychiatrist. There are, you know, I think there probably are a few things that, you know, I kind of bring to the table by sharing a cultural background and religious background with them. But just to talk more in general, really, there are very, very few perinatal psychiatrists just out there in the world. And it's, it's unfortunately, it's a, it's a need that's really very, very, very much in demand. What's the need? Is it depression? Is it? Yeah. Or is it regular people who have mental health issues who become pregnant? Or does the pregnancy cause the mental health issues? Okay, no, no, you're right. And it goes both ways. Thank you for bringing that up. So, so yeah, people sort of come to my office in one of two ways. Either they have like a pre-existing mental health condition and they're considering getting pregnant or they are pregnant and they are concerned about the impact of the condition on their baby and the impact of the treatment on their baby. And unfortunately, there's really a lot of stigma and misinformation out there. And oftentimes, people are sort of reflexively advised to stop their medication when actually that's really not the correct advice and actually is more harmful to the baby and to the pregnancy. And then there are people who are pregnant who have had a history of mental illness and they're hoping to prevent And they may or may not be stable on medication right now, but we do know that the postpartum period is really a vulnerable time period for for women with mental health issues and even women without a past history of mental health issues in general. And that's particularly true for women with some particular diagnoses that the postpartum period, for example, bipolar disorder, the postpartum period is a very, 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 very uniquely vulnerable time period for these women. And so kind of thinking about sort of how to prevent the impact of pregnancy and postpartum on their mental illness. So the need really is, you know, again, in perinatal psychiatry in general, there are really very, very few providers who are comfortable or knowledgeable about treating psychiatric conditions during pregnancy and postpartum. And often women are undertreated and not given really evidence-based guidance. Okay, let's talk about the treatments, the medical-based guidance. I want to hear the specifics. Sure. Okay, great. So in general, when we're talking, you know, I think every illness, it kind of deserves its own focus. And I have, have a lecture on everything and they're all separate. But, you know, when we're talking sort of more just about depression and anxiety, really, you know, most of the medications that we use to treat depression and anxiety, most of them really have a lot of evidence that is reassuring in terms of treatment and pregnancy. Again, right, like, talk to your doctor about your individual medication, but the, you know, almost everything that we would use to treat depression or anxiety during pregnancy would be a medication that we have a good deal of reassuring data supporting its its safety. The other thing I think that's really become very, very clear over the past really decade or so, maybe even longer, is that we really need to think about treatment of depression and anxiety during pregnancy in the same way as we think about treatment of other medical conditions. So in other words, if somebody had diabetes, for example, nobody would ever say to them, well, let's like, we're not going to treat your diabetes during pregnancy because we're worried about the effects of the medication on your, on your baby. Nobody would ever say that. And the reason nobody would ever say that is because we know that, you know, the effects of untreated diabetes are harmful and much more significantly harmful than the impact of medication. So we would, we would in that case, you know, want to choose the safest medication during pregnancy, but we would never kind of have the conversation of like, 
are we just not going to treat the illness? So what what's really become like clear from really quite a lot of, of research is that depression and anxiety are really the same and that we see very clear like developmental, negative developmental effects from lack of treatment. That women who decide, you know, often who are given, you know, not great advice to sort of white knuckle it and not take medication are actually not doing their babies any favor is that actually it exposes them. The exposure to untreated depression and anxiety actually puts their baby at higher risk than treatment. Can you give an example? What kind of risk is the baby at? So, yeah. So, I mean, again, there's nothing like, you know, there's no smoking gun, right? It's not like, you know, your baby's going to be born with four toes. But, you know, but we see, you know, kind of trends towards these children having more emotional problems during childhood, more cognitive issues during childhood. There are actually very specific radiographic brain imaging differences that we can see. Again, not in every child, obviously. If you look at a population of children who were exposed to depression and anxiety during pregnancy and postpartum, as opposed to those who were not, kind of on a whole, there is a trend towards greater emotional issues, some psychomotor issues, some cognitive issues, and also some radiographic changes. Besides for anxiety and depression, what are some other? Are we talking bipolar? Yeah, bipolar disorder is a condition that I actually, you know, treat a lot during pregnancy. That's something I really love doing. The medications used to treat bipolar disorder are a little bit more complicated, and it's more sort of on an individual level. There's one medication, valproic acid, that really should never, ever be used during pregnancy because it's really very, very clearly causes a lot of really concerning developmental abnormalities in a very consistent way. And kind of the more we learn about it, the worse it gets. Other medications, you know, have been potentially associated with very, very minimal increased risks of some issues. And in that case, it often is a risk-benefit discussion. There are some medications that we would absolutely feel comfortable using in somebody who really had a very clear positive response to it. And with a conversation about that it does potentially present a very, very, very tiny increased risk of some issues. And there are other medications that we use to treat bipolar disorder that really we feel just as comfortable using as we do the medications that we use to treat depression and anxiety. And really, you know, we don't, we're not really concerned about using them at all in a patient who needs them. And again, sort of like thinking about kind of the same issue where we're balancing the risks of the medication against the risks of untreated illness, which are considerable. Also, women with bipolar disorder, like I was saying before, are really at very, very high risk for postpartum mood episodes without treatment. And particularly sort of our most feared outcome, which is postpartum psychosis, which is, you know, in the population, the incidence of postpartum psychosis is one in a thousand. But most of those women are going to turn out to have bipolar disorder. Some will not, but the risk is really much higher in women with bipolar disorder of postpartum psychosis. And postpartum psychosis is really an, an emergency. And kind of a lot of the cases that, you know, unfortunately have been in the media recently, like really tragic cases of women harming their children have been in the context of postpartum psychosis. So it's a real concern. Let's go back to, is there anything unique besides for just you being from an understanding from women in the fact that they come to you? Have you found any correlations or reasons specifically to from women and anxiety and depression? And I'm alluding to this. Big families, pressure to have big families. 
Nida, being Nida and having to deal with that. And birth control with Nida, with big families. And I'd like for you to address as much as you can. Right. No, so these are clearly all issues that, you know, that absolutely come up with many of my patients and are issues that need to be discussed. Yeah, I mean, that just the fact that I am I somebody who shares their lifestyle is, I think, often something that people do find, you know, appealing just in general without anything else. But I think that sometimes women who are on medications are unfortunately advised not to have any more children, which I think is bad advice for anyone, whether they be from or not from, if they want to have children, that's sort of not our role to to tell, you know, the woman not not to have children. Our role is to help, you know, kind of guide them and advise them to have as, you know, as safe and healthy pregnancy as possible. But I think particularly in the from community, women kind of run up against that where, you know, they're wanting to have their fourth or their fifth child and their doctor just really doesn't understand why if they already have three or four children and they... uh, like now have to sort of also balance kind of all these risks and benefits with the medication and the illness. Why does there, you know, even considering wanting to have any more children? And so, you know, I think we, we sort of bypass that conversation, which is a conversation we should bypass whether the woman is from or not. But I just think it, you know, comes up more often in the from community. Yeah. I mean, certainly issues around family size and sort of the stress that that entails is absolutely an issue. I do think that, you know, in my, now 18 years of practice, I've really seen very, very significant movement on that issue. I've seen a lot more kind of awareness that mental health issues are really, really important in terms of considering um, family size and spacing between children. And there's kind of a lot more awareness that that's something that does absolutely need to be taken into consideration in making these decisions. And then, you know, I think in terms of birth control, right, there's sort of the, you know, the obvious issue of, you know, kind of method of birth control with hormonal birth control generally being the more preferred method halachically with some some exceptions, but with barrier methods really being very problematic. And certainly there are some women who respond poorly to hormonal birth control in terms of their, their mood or anxiety disorder. Many women don't. Many women do absolutely fine with it. And, it, and there's no reason not to try a form of hormonal birth control if you do have a mood or anxiety disorder, if you've not had a negative experience with one in the past. But I do see that quite a bit is that sometimes women will, some women in particular may do poorly with a form of hormonal birth control. And then that is a culturally sensitive conversation that needs to be had in terms of method of birth control, kind of taking all those factors into consideration. I feel stuck because (laughs) I don't feel like I got enough details or juiciness out of the things I did bring up before we move on. I, I just wanted a little more, whether it's examples or not specific cases, but a scenario that's classic to from family and the dynamics. I mean, I can actually tell you about a case I supervised yesterday, like in in the car. I was called by one of the nurse practitioners that I supervised about a, a woman who has bipolar disorder who just started a form of hormonal birth control and has done very, very poorly after starting. And again, I just want to make it like very, 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 very clear that like most women do find out birth control, even women with mood and anxiety disorders. But this woman, there was a very, very clear correlation 
she started uh, the pill and the combined oral contraceptive pill. And just a few like days later, she'd been really, really stable. A few days later, she really crashed and had been doing very, very poorly. And there was actually a lot of drama around around this woman's care and the family was very concerned. And I think it really only, you know, once she kind of, you know, landed in my nurse practitioner's office, we, you know, we kind of put it together, like, you know, kind of the connection with the oral contraceptives. So, and, you know, the nurse practitioner is is not from. And so sort of part of the conversation with her was, you know, this is clearly somebody who really, you know, should not be getting pregnant now. And I think everybody's, you know, everybody's in agreement with that. The patient's in agreement with that. Her husband's in agreement with that. Her family's in agreement with that. That's, I think that wasn't the issue. It wasn't kind of justifying her not getting pregnant. But the issue was then, okay, so now like that we know she can't get pregnant like we really have to think through with her rub like kind of what her options are given the fact that you know we we think that the likely cause of this current exacerbation of her her depression due to her bipolar disorder was related to her starting hormonal birth control is that you say now well there are other hormonal options that Correct. are also available. Right. Right. And, no, and that's a really good point. It, it's actually not clear, you know, once somebody does, and I think, you know, there are reasonable people who might disagree with me on this, but once somebody has done poorly with a form of hormonal birth control, you know, I, I ideally would want them to avoid that at least like right now while we're getting them better. And Probably in the foreseeable future, if their episode is really very, very severe, there is certainly data a lot of OBs will will tell patients that, you know, forms of hormonal birth control that are less systemic, for example, like they, the hormones are absorbed systemically much less. Like, for example, the NuvaRing, where the, you know, the hormones are really just kind of local. And so we would think that there would be less of a chance of, of mood symptoms with, with such a medication rather than an oral contraceptive, for example, where the hormones are, you know, are taken orally and are fully available systemically. The data doesn't necessarily bear that out. It's interesting. You know, I it's it's a logical conclusion to draw that if, you know, there's sort of less systemic absorption that, you know, the risk should be lower. That, you know, it makes sense to 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 think that that might be the case, but the data does not bear that out actually. And, you know, a very, very large study looking at women with kind of negative responses for their motor anxiety disorder. Uh, you know, across the board with, you know, multiple, multiple different forms of hormonal birth control, it, it actually looks like the risk is the same. Another thing that comes out a lot with postpartum, potentially, is trying out, and especially if you're trying out a birth control, or you start out nursing, and you're on one birth control, and then you stop nursing, you change birth controls, and that consistent period of being Nida, or consistently going to the mikvah and becoming Nida again and again. And That's so difficult. Does that affect mental health of a woman and put her in a crazy state? Yeah, I mean, certainly that could absolutely be a stressor that could contribute. You know, I think we're talking. That's very common. I hear 100%. all the time. They get to the mikvah after a few months, after a few weeks after having the baby, and then five seconds later, they're back to the mikvah. And then they start on a birth control and they're back to the mikvah and then whatever it is. Right. No, that's so frustrating. And I think we want to like, I think I'm glad you brought that up because I think it allows me to highlight like a really important distinction between sort of a like treatable mental health condition versus, you know, kind of normal distress. Right. So, you know, 
like if somebody was really very, 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 very frustrated because of all the factors that you mentioned, that would be completely understandable and they might be very sad and they might be angry and they might be anxious. That wouldn't necessarily be something that we would automatically consider medication for unless if there was something else going on. Normally, when we think about a mental health disorder that we treat with medication, we're thinking more about somebody who really, you know, like we want to look for sort of pervasiveness and persistence, right? Somebody who's really sad, you know, kind of most of the day, every day for days or weeks or anxious most of the day, every day for days or weeks and sort of not going away kind of no matter what. And also other associated symptoms that we see, you know, with kind of mental health conditions that we would consider treating with medication would be disturbances in sleep are very, very common. Disturbances in appetite are very common. Disturbances in energy are very common. And we would see sort of these issues, you know, kind of day in and day out for days or weeks. That would be somebody that I would then kind of diagnose with depression or with anxiety and would think about treatment. And that treatment could be psychotherapy and that treatment could be medication, sort of depending on the the individual factors. And certainly somebody who does have one of those conditions, then if they're put in a really, really difficult situation, such as the one that you're mentioning, you're mentioning, you know, that can absolutely make them more vulnerable to have a recurrent, you know, have their symptoms become worse. But it's somebody who is, you know, is just struggling with an extremely, extremely difficult situation and is feeling frustrated, but, you know, is other to able to enjoy other aspects of their life and able to feel happy and doesn't feel sad all the time and is sleeping and eating normally and, you know, kind of functioning normally. I wouldn't necessarily think about medication, you know, kind of being where I would go first. Right. Okay. But as somebody who witnesses this kind of disturbance, do you have any advice for anyone who's not necessarily medically depressed or anxious, but any tools as a psychotherapist, what what can you advise to women who are going through? It, it's not something they can share when, you, when somebody asks right. you, how are you doing? You're right. not gonna start sharing your cycles with them. Right, right, yeah, no, you're right. That That is, that's a really, really tough question. I mean, I think I would, you know, recommend that people, you know, kind of lean on their existing support systems as they would kind of with any, any difficult thing going on in their life with obviously the understanding that this is more personal than, than other things, but people to whom they feel comfortable disclosing, they should lean on their existing support system for, for help and support. All the usual sort of wellness advice, I think, is more complicated when you have a new baby because, you know, you're not necessarily going to be able to sleep as much as you'd like to. And so that's not going to help either. But, you know, to the extent that you can kind of recruit other people to help you take care of yourself, I think that would be, you know, the best advice that I could give. And if somebody's really, really struggling, then, you know, therapy certainly could be an option. Now, the reason I was connected to you was because I brought up a question that makes doctors very upset. And you validated that question a little bit. Does birth control affect infertility? And I've heard many doctors get upset or offended with that because the research they have or use shows that it does not affect fertility. And what I mean by that is if you take XY drug, when you get off of it, will that prevent you from or or slow down the ability to conceive and have a healthy pregnancy? And that just the amount of blatant, quick nose and there's no correlation, the research doesn't show it, just it feels very disvalidating. And then I'll plug her in a frop block has said, you know, it's a biased, there's not enough research, potentially because the people who assign the research are men, and they're not enough women who 
wanted this research to happen. So we don't really have the research available to show otherwise. And because we don't know, or the few things that we do have, like in Russia, for example, when you go test your product, they say, what results do you want? You know, (laughs) this feels a little bit like it just from the responses I've gotten from healthcare professionals. And then the flip side is when you get a medical evaluation and people ask you what you're on, birth control is completely dismissed as something that affect your well-being. For example, a birth control can be a direct effect on somebody's mental health. And if they just switch their birth control, they'll be a completely different person. I heard this on a TikTok that people marry a certain person on birth control. And then if they're off that birth control, they would have never married that person or something. So it can change your personality or your preferences or whatever it is. And I feel like there's not enough validation to the correlation of these issues of personality or mood effects slash fertility. And that's why we were connected because you are a doctor and you have those qualifications and you had what to say. And just FYI, I don't go to doctor's offices and surveying them. I live in a town that's full of doctors. So just going to shul, my my, my Shabbos table, yeah, I'll have a nice- uh, We interact with the same people. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I think you're bringing up actually three separate issues that I'm going to try to address separately. And I think I want to leave the validation one for last because I think that's like the most important one. I think, you know, the two kind of medical issues, like does birth control lead to infertility? And I think the second totally separate medical question is, does birth control cause, you know, issues in people with their mood or with their anxiety? So the first, I'm going to just, my caveat is I'm not an OBGYN. So that would be a question that would really probably be better answered by an OBGYN. But I will, with with that caveat, I will answer the best that I can. That's my understanding of the data too. And I hate to say it that I way. I did ask uh, an OBGYN and she said, right, there's right. no correlation. I'm thinking, how can the medication that prevents you from getting pregnant have no effect on the ability of getting pregnant when you do want to and you get off of right. it? So again, I think, you know, like ask any OBGYN to explain that better. My understanding is that that is the case, that there really is not, that there is no correlation between, you know, There's birth no control research and, that proves that. There's no, correct, correct. There's no Thank research you. that proves that. And there is research that does seem to, you know, disprove that. And I think that, you know, where we're, where, where we get stuck, I think, with the validation question is that I think sometimes we're kind of trying to convey different things and are talking different languages. So now I'm, I'm getting, I'm, I'm jumping ahead of myself to the whole validation piece, which is that, you know, I think that sometimes what happens, and I, I definitely see this in, you know, in psychiatry is that, Bad things happen, unfortunately. Bad things happen and bad things happen commonly. And, you know, sort of depending on what you're, you know, talking about. And, you know, again, like I don't, I don't want to sound insensitive because when bad things happen, that's terrible and it should be addressed compassionately and appropriately and not just, you know, dismissively. And I think that's part of the issue is kind of how these conversations happen rather than like the content of them necessarily. 
But fortunately, I think what happens is that bad outcomes happen, whether that bad outcome be somebody struggling with infertility, whether that bad outcome being somebody's child having autism, whether that bad outcome be somebody with bipolar disorder having a mood episode. These are things that unfortunately do happen and should be met with a tremendous amount of compassion and support when they do happen. I think that sometimes when these things happen, people's sort of natural instinct, and we have a name for this in research, it's called recall bias, right? People's natural instinct is to look back and be like, okay, like what just happened? And like then sort of associate like what just happened in their life that may or may have have been different with kind of the bad outcome that they had. that correlation isn't always necessarily accurate. If two things are connected, right, We what we learned in the first week of medical school is correlation doesn't equal causation. So just because two things are connected in time doesn't necessarily mean that one causes another. And so my understanding is, you know, research that generally looks at these phenomenon, like does X cause Y, right? And I, again, I, I don't have a lot of familiarity with the birth control and fertility research because that's not my field. But generally, just talking in general about sort of this research, we look at is do people who, you know, have the outcome of concern have a higher chance of having had the exposure of concern? In other words, like, do people who suffer from infertility, are they more likely to have been on birth control recently? And if we look at kind of people with infertility across the board, and we don't see a difference in terms of, you know, the people who have been on birth control and the people who haven't been on birth control, we conclude that there really isn't a causal association. And so I don't want to speak to that research in particular because I'm not familiar with it, but generally that's the way that research is conducted in general. And there's a lot, you know, there are a lot, there's a lot of research that's conducted in similar ways. I mean, I think you know, like there are a lot, I think there are a lot of really, you know, kind of very, very sensitive topics where, you know, that's sort of the conversation. So I think what what the problem, you know, the thing that, you know, where the conversation goes wrong is I think exactly what you're describing, where, you know, there's a person who's in pain, who's trying to like explain their pain, who's trying to understand their pain, who's trying to give meaning to their pain, kind of reaches out for validation and understanding. And the answer is dismissive. That's not an appropriate way to have that conversation. I think, you know, the answer can still be, no, that really the evidence doesn't really support that at the same time as sort of being able to have that conversation in a different way, which is really not dismissive in the way that you're describing. Does that make sense? Yeah, but the second element of dismissiveness is that the birth control affects the person's well-being. A hundred percent. Right. So that's a separate issue, right? Those are two totally separate issues. And so that, that I can speak to actually very, I, I think I, I can really speak to that because I, you know, I, I have done a deep dive into the research on that. And what we see is that hormonal birth control, if you look at the population, if you look at like every person, whether or not they have a mental illness, obviously we haven't looked at every person, but like in the population in general, if you look at people with hormonal birth control, who are, who are on hormonal birth control in general, they are not any more likely to have a mood disorder or have a relapse of their mood disorder than anybody else, right? So that's sort of, you know, like kind of looking at in general, if you are a person who, you know, is considering being on hormonal birth control and you don't have a history of a mood or anxiety disorder, or you do have a history of a mood or anxiety disorder, but you've not ever been on an oral contraceptive before, you know, in the context of your mood and anxiety disorder, it does not seem like, you know, kind of going in, those people are at higher risk. Now, that being said, clearly there are some people who are vulnerable. 
And we haven't, you know, and I think this speaks to, again, I think exactly what you're saying in terms of the things that we don't know and the things that maybe, you know, should have been studied more than they are. There is clearly a vulnerable population and we don't necessarily know who that is. So it does seem like there are people who are, you know, quote unquote, hormonally sensitive. So people who have had an episode of postpartum depression are much, much, much more likely to have another episode of postpartum depression, and their family members are more likely to have postpartum depression. It's clearly something that, you know, has some biological underpinning to it, that sensitivity. Although, you know, again, we don't know how to identify those people before they've had an episode. People who... What does an um, episode look like? Symptoms of depression that you would, you know, consider treating with medication or symptoms of anxiety that you, you would consider Which is treating what? with medication. Which is what? So like I talked about before, pervasive, persistent symptoms where somebody's sad and down or anxious most of the day, every day, and kind of has these sort of other associated symptoms that we associate with depression or anxiety, changes in sleep, changes in energy, changes in appetite, possibly suicidal thoughts, kind of, you know. So an episode can be something over three weeks? Is that what you're saying? Or an episode um, is a specific event? I'm talking about like a like an episode of the mood or anxiety disorder, in other words. So in the way we tell whether somebody has a mood or anxiety disorder, it's kind of seeing that they, you know, kind of consistently have symptoms over time, right? So in other words, somebody who's like sad because something bad happened, but then they're happy later in the day, like that's not a mood disorder. Yeah, no, no, I'm not talking about like something happening in their life. I'm talking about them having like symptoms of a mood disorder and anxiety disorder that we would treat that was like different from their usual normal self. So in any event, there are clearly people who are vulnerable to that. People who have had a history of postpartum depression may be at higher risk for having mood symptoms associated with oral contraceptives. Although again, that's not 100% clear. People who have symptoms around menopause are probably more likely. And people who have had symptoms, symptoms around their period, you know, they're, they're somewhat different, but these, there, there is some evidence that, you know, people who kind of are sensitive to one you know, vulnerable period in their life in terms of their mood and anxiety may be sensitive to another. So that can be information that can be used to predict. I think the thing that I, I, you know, that I worry about because I've seen it is, you know, people who are unfortunately given not great advice to like never go on an oral contraceptive because they have a history of depression. That's not good advice. On the other hand, because there's really no clear indication that those people, that that person is at higher risk. Now, if that person starts an oral contraceptive and does notice that their mood has gotten worse or they're having new symptoms, that's real. You know, that's absolutely real. And we need to, you know, call it as it is and then say, you know, again, this is somebody who's clearly sensitive to hormonal contraceptives. And we really need to be very, very careful about using using them in the future in that particular person. Does that make sense? Yeah. Is there anything we haven't covered yet that you specialize or that you speak on I think it's it's really very, very, very important. I just want to really emphasize how important treatment is, both because moms should be well. Like it's not it's not okay for us to tell women and moms that like they should just write, just white knuckle it and suffer because that's just not okay. But in addition to that, we also again do know that treatment is often safer than lack of treatment. And I think, you know, a lot of people are are not well informed about that. I hear all the time about people getting, you know, told by even by their psychiatrist, by their internist, by their OBGYN to stop their medication, you know, when they're pregnant or when they're planning for pregnancy. And that often, uh, unfortunately, can result in 
really the worst of both worlds where the baby is then exposed to untreated symptoms as well as medication, which is really something that we want to avoid. But again, we really feel very, very, very comfortable using the medications that we use in general to treat depression and anxiety in pregnancy and in, you know, in most cases where that's needed. My last idea that I'd like to share or ask you about comes from that same research bias. I hope in 10 years, in five years, 15, we'll have, maybe it's a blood test or some screening. And then the doctor says, this birth control is the right fit for your blood type and your family history and X, Y, and Z, as well as using that in mental health when there are a few options just saying based on your blood type, your wellness, I'm not a doctor. So th this is the right medication yeah. for you. Instead of saying, try mother. this and then yeah. try that. Yeah. You're we right. Need, we You're need right. more advancement in this industry. So, right. so right. there's so much aggravation that I hope in the future can be avoided. Yeah, no, you're 100% right. And we, you know, we do need to do better. And we just unfortunately just don't have the tools for that right now. And I think where that disconnect happens is we we genuinely really just don't have that to offer right now. Like, you know, I wish we did. Like, you know, I think speaking to patients with depression and anxiety, also like what I treat, right? People come in and say, Let's try like, this. I, you yeah. know, I want to know what the right medication is for me. And I have to say, like, I really don't know. Like we have to, you know, sometimes there's ways to predict based on different factors, sort of what's more likely to be helpful. But, you know, often the answer is we really do kind of have to try this. And, and I, I wish that wasn't the answer, but unfortunately where we are right now, it is. And I think that answer just needs to be delivered, you know, passionately and and clearly and not I think what you're reflecting I think is a lot of patients experience which is when you know kind of doctors give advice and they don't necessarily have to offer what the patient wants them to have to offer they're sort of the communication happens in a way that the patient may feel like they're emotions and their needs are being dismissed. And that's, well, that yeah, should well, never I'm be using this platform to encourage anyone who's looking for a topic of research or any tech to develop. This is something I think worthwhile developing. Yeah, we're a long way away from that. It's, it's definitely something that is, you know, I cer certainly in psychiatry is being worked on actively, but we still really are a long way away, unfortunately. And that's hard. That's hard to hear. That's hard. That's hard for me to say. It's hard for a patient to hear. I wish I had better news for you. And, you know, I, I think it's important to acknowledge the fact that that's hard to hear. One more point I'd like to yeah. use this opportunity to bring out is with the whole topic of transgender. And it's such a big deal to take hormones. And that's when people's eyebrows are raised. And it makes sense. But then women, young girls are just shoved different hormones, try this, try that, and nobody raises an eyebrow in terms of damage to mental health, to physical health. Or we don't know yet enough right. what the damage no, is. And we, it's just thrown. No. It, you want three different types of birth controls, try them all, and you're 13, go ahead. And, and it's almost like... <laughs> In a way, it's great because we don't want 13-year-olds getting pregnant or 15-year-olds getting pregnant or anyone who doesn't want to get pregnant, get pregnant. On the other hand, it's let's just shove all these hormones down <laughs> into your bodies. Yeah. I mean, and, and that unfortunately, you know, I, 
I hear you. And again, I can hear how people would absolutely have a lot of really, you know, like reasonable, compelling, legitimate questions about that. This is I'm just surprised with how much caution we treat all kinds of medications. And when it comes to this, somehow there's this free for all attitude. Right, right. No, that's interesting. And, you know, in terms of sort of, you know, can't speak to this the way an, an OBGYN would. This is not my area of expertise. You know, my understanding is that these medications, you know, have been around for a very, very long time and have been extensively studied. And, you know, and that's why, um, you know, people are comfortable Feel using them. But yeah, but again, I don't. It's just an interesting point. I, I can't I speak to the details. Bring out. But you, yeah, you, no, it's, you, it's an you interesting did, point. But you did say it's been around for longer. But They I have been around for a very, very, very long time. Yeah. Okay, let's conclude. Thank you so much, Dr. Tal, for Thank joining me today. Thank you so much for inviting me. This was so such a pleasure to be here. And if anyone has any follow-up questions or points, feel free to take it up in the discussion group or send me a message, and I'm happy to continue the conversation or make a connection here. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Until the end, I would like to announce that I'm looking for guests to talk about making simchas and the pressures, I'd like to get more personal finance stories about living a firm lifestyle. So if you'd like to come on, you can be anonymous. We'd love to hear your story. We'd also like to do an episode on being a step-parent or a stepchild, blended families. So reach out if you would like to volunteer. Oh, and one last thing, if you host Gap Year Students in Israel, I'd love to hear from you. I'm looking to do an episode on that. So here we go. I'm sure you're super busy, but I love hearing from you. So please keep sending me messages and have a great week. See you next time. 